In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We all carry unconscious biases, some of us more obviously than others, of course. And today's guest, Pragya Argaval, has done a huge amount of research into how we can combat the prejudices we carry with us and make better decisions in everything we do. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I'm Pragya Agarwal. I'm a behavioral and data scientist and I'm a visiting professor at Loughborough Universities in Social Inequities and Inclusion, and I am a founder of Research Think Tank, 50% project where we consult with a number of organizations and we look at global inequities. And I'm an author of a nonfiction book, Sway Unraveling Unconscious Bias, which I suppose we'll be talking about, but two other books, Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race and Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman, and I write for other places as well. You're a true polymath then. That's wonderful. I was going to start with your latest book, and we're talking about bias and prejudice. And obviously, they're two different words. And I thought we could probably start by discussing what you understand, what the general member of the world thinks of as bias and prejudice, and how they overlap or don't overlap, or how you would define bias as opposed to prejudice or vice versa. So I think there's been a lot more discussion about bias and prejudice and discrimination in the last year, I suppose. So these terms have become more mainstream. I think sometimes people get confused between bias and prejudice. Personally, I think bias, we all carry biases. Biases means that we have a preference for something more than something else. So I have a bias towards pistachio ice cream, or I have a bias towards certain kind of books or uh, any color. So that's a bias. Anything that sways our decision, when I see two things, I'm, I have a preference for the other. But in some cases, that bias is harmful, it's toxic, and it can become prejudice when you actively, unconsciously or implicitly or explicitly prefer or give preference to something that causes or reinforces the social and systemic inequities, you know, inequalities. So if I hire certain kind of people all the time, 
because I have affinity towards them, because I think they'll be a better fit for the organization, that means that I might be, or anybody might be reinforcing some of these imbalances that are already existing in our society, that where certain people have more advantages than others because of their belonging or identity to a certain class or group. So that is a prejudice because that reinforces the systemic imbalances that already exist in our society. So I suppose prejudice is when that bias impacts on other people negatively or arguably positively, because I think you can be positively prejudiced towards one group as opposed to negatively towards the other. So it sort of cuts both ways, I think. This is presumably a global phenomenon amongst human beings that um, in the West, we particularly think of racism, white, black issues. But I imagine that most societies have something similar to them that they have to fight against, perhaps? Is that your experience from studying this area? Yes, I think prejudices exist in different forms. Prejudices means that you're discriminating against somebody and assigning benefit or advantage. Any stereotypes that we carry or any kind of internalized messages that this is better than the other. So, for instance, we talk about racism and um, we talk about racism being a power issue or a privilege issue. But there's another aspect of it in other cultures and communities like in India or in Asia, other Asian societies, or even in African societies. Because of the long historic legacy of imperialism, these messages have been internalized, which manifest in form of colorism, where it has been internalized that whiteness is associated with superiority or superior ability or beauty. So which means that darker skin is not considered as beautiful. So certain advantages are afforded to people who have fairer skin. And that is colorism and that affects all sections of society. So within black community, within brown community, colorism exists. But we have to think about why it came across like that. Why did it happen like this eventually? Because of the legacy, because of these messages that have become embedded in our society, which have been internalized. And yes, we have sexism, we have misogyny, which exists in form of patriarchy in a lot of societies. So that is another form of prejudice, uh, bias and prejudice as well that can create prejudice. But there can be other forms, which I talk about in Sway. It's not just racism or sexism, but what people dress as, how they look, what their heights are, what, uh, what accents they have, which part of the country or region they come from, which university they went to. That can also create kind of a notion of hierarchy or superiority towards certain people, which can advantage them because of these. So bias is a sort of part of the way that the human brain seems to work. You know, we, we have preferences as a particular type of food and nobody would seem to think that that was a bad thing. But I think everybody can see that prejudice against a group of people is a bad thing. Even in its most abstract sense, it's, it seems an absurd thing to do, but it's very difficult to get rid of. How can we fight against sort of the wrong kind of biases? And, and how, can we, how can we adjust our modes of thinking? Because you talk a little bit about brain disorders and impairments that almost give us a window on why the brain might think like this and how. And I wondered if you could sort of expand on that for me a little bit. It seems like it's a very interesting area, the neurobiology of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's an aspect of evolution in it, an evolutionary aspect that I talk about in the book as well, that we were kind of conditioned, our our ancestors were, 
to create these in-group, out-group associations where we lay down these divides and say, this person doesn't belong to my tribe, my community, this person is out-group. And in the very, very distant past, it happened because of the instinct to survive, that our ancestors knew that their resources were limited, people who were coming from outside who were not part of our immediate group could bring in diseases that we hadn't built immunity to, all those kind of things. And research shows that when we consider somebody a member of the out-group, we are likely to be more prejudiced against them. We are likely to discriminate against them because we have a certain affinity towards people who we consider part of in-group. And now these kind of in-group, out-group associations can be strengthened by politicians' messages or media messages, which tell us that certain people will come in and take our jobs away or change our lifestyle or change our status quo. And our brain doesn't like the discomfort of change. We are always resistant to change. And also knowing more about this kind of neuroscience or how our brain is acting towards information is really useful. Because when we start thinking about the dual processing theory about how brain processes information, we realize that our brain is being bombarded with information from all sides all the time. I mean, especially now with all the virtual platforms, social media, everything, we are constantly being bombarded with it. We can't, our brains can't process all this information in a rational way. So natural instinct is that we do this processing very kind of quickly and spontaneously, and we judge people quite quickly as well, because our brain is trying to preserve our cognitive resources. And this is called system one processing. And this happens a lot, mostly in the part of the brain, which is the amygdala. And the amygdala reacts to, it's it's designed to react to fear and threat, which means that we are more likely to be fearful of certain situations which are unfamiliar. So the fear of the unfamiliar or unfamiliar people or people we have built stereotypes to because when this information comes in, our brain kind of subconsciously matches it to the existing templates that are already in the brain that we have built up through time or through our experiences and does some kind of a visual matching thing and says, actually, this kind of person acted like this in the past or this is the stereotype that I have of this person or this situation. So it's likely to happen again. And so we are kind of matching this against these templates. And that is how our stereotypes become activated. But when we take time to process this information, when we don't react in a kind of a really impulsive manner, or when we are just kind of retweeting things and sharing things without reading the article, we are more likely to send that information to more rational parts of our brain, which is like the prefrontal cortex, which takes time to assign rules, to look for more information, to think of consequences. And so we are processing that information more rationally. We are less likely to activate stereotypes. So there is that sense of knowing and understanding how our brain is processing information and why these stereotypes get activated as well. So then we can maybe take time with important decisions and build a gap between holding stereotypes and activating stereotypes as well, which is likely to lead to prejudice. So in a way, the amygdala acts as a sort of summary decision-making thing, which is a very quick process, very reactive survival technique to sort of instantly give you a a decision rather than taking a while to make a decision. And in a survival situation, I suppose, those brains that reacted more strongly survived more and then passed on their genes to the next generation. I did read a study once uh, some time ago where it looked at the amygdala itself and how responsive it was to fear stimulus, which mapped across to political viewpoints as well in a fascinating way that if somebody's amygdala reacted very strongly to a threat picture, there was a 80% percent 
linkage to being more right-wing than left-wing. I haven't seen any follow-up studies to that, but I thought it was very interesting that the base way the brain kicks off thought processes can have an effect on the macro-political <laughs> spectrum of the human being you are. I haven't seen that, so I'm going to go and Google it now. But it's really interesting that our belonging to a particular group can have an effect on how we react to incoming information. Mm. But maybe it makes sense in the way that our brains are more likely to be resistant to change if we belong to a group that has more power or privilege, perhaps, because we are resistant to change in status quo. And there is information to show that actually, yeah, people who are higher up in hierarchies, um, belong to those identity groups, carry sometimes more prejudice and discrimination towards people who are lower in the status and hierarchy, and it doesn't work the other way around because they, their brains are more reluctant or they are more reluctant to any change in their status, because any social change will bring about a change in their status. There's some absolutely fascinating things. So biases, we, we also talk about cognitive biases quite a lot. One of the processes of the scientific method is to try to reduce cognitive biases when you're reaching decisions. You're trying to find information that is as close to the truth as possible. And the, quite interestingly, sometimes talking to non-scientists, people often talk about the proof of something. You know, is that proven? It's like, well, no, because science is always tentative. And history has shown us that there can be new information that comes in that can upset and replace the accepted best fit theory with a whole new theory. And if a new theory comes in, it's got to answer all the questions that the old theory <laughs> answered, you know, better to be adopted, generally speaking. And some people find that quite difficult. And, and I think thinking without or reducing cognitive biases is actually quite difficult to do. If somebody's been brought up in a society where they have privilege and their way of thinking has reinforced that privilege, how do we encourage them to challenge that and unlearn it? Because learning is difficult and sometimes painful and slow in any field. Yeah, I think it is tricky. And yes, I mean, that is the challenge that we are facing, isn't it? Um, all, all through society, <laughs> or through the, the different discussions that we are having. Uh, I think, first of all, acknowledging that we might carry biases is the first step. And I think we are all reluctant to do that because we all think that uh, being biased means that I'm a very bigoted person or I'm a racist or a sexist person. And everybody assumes, uh, we all think that we are very fair-minded and we don't want to be penalized for considered to be biased or prejudiced. And to understand that actually a lot of these biases are learned through our lives. So if we look at developmental psychology, if we look at how children learn prejudices and biases, we know that this sense of in-group and out-group is reinforced as they grow older. They are not born with this sense of bias. So it's not like genetically hardwired in them. And there's an instinct to categorize people. There is an instinct to box things and label things, label people and situations. There is an instinct to form these in-group and out-group, but that becomes reinforced. And how much people do that depends on how we are brought up and what kind of education we've had. So if we can learn these biases, that means we can unlearn them as well. And I think, obviously, the most effective way would be to actually start talking to our children from a very young age and thinking about how gender socialization or racial socialization affects their children's biases and prejudices and how they grow up with that and how that affects their self-identity as well as how they relate to other people. But once this has become deeply embedded and ingrained in us, I think 
the first step is this acknowledgement that yes, I might carry some biases. I just need time to reflect on them and consider them and be open about it and to be reflecting on it constantly. And I think education is really the first step. Reading about it is really the first step. An empathetic view towards the world is really the first step, which means that actually considering that other people who might not have certain privileges as us might have a different view on the world and might have a different experience of the world. And I think we shirk around this topic of privilege often because we, again, don't want to feel like we have privileges because we all feel like we've had certain barriers and difficulties in life and challenges. But I do think that all of us, again, carry a lot of privileges. We carry different kinds of privileges depending on our intersecting identities. And we need to be able to acknowledge these privileges to say, actually, these are the privileges I have, which means that these are the barriers that I didn't face. These are the barriers that were removed from my path because of these privileges. If I'm educated, if I'm heterosexual, if I'm cisgender, all those kind of privileges that I am white, middle class, and all those kind of identities can create privileges. And I think really having this discussion about and being open to the fact that Talking about privileges doesn't dismiss the challenges some fun has faced in life. It only means that we can acknowledge those privileges and use them as leverage to help others who haven't got the privilege. And I think that is the kind of discussion we need to have, which sometimes is so binary in our media or in our society about black and white, whether we are pitting black people against working class people. It's just such a binary discussion. And I think we need to have a more intersectional nuanced discussion around it. I think a lot of these things are solved by, by by talking to people from different backgrounds. I mean, I know my personal experience was very privileged, middle-class upbringing, went to Oxford, and have been on the receiving end of privilege without probably knowing it in any way, shape, or form, and still are. The long hair is an interesting one because I spent most of my life with more traditional male hair, shorter, and very rarely got stopped when traveling. But as I've grown my hair, it's been a really interesting wake-up call. Just being the same person, but with long hair as a man, means I get stopped by security in airports dramatically more. Four or five times more likely to be stopped when I'm traveling to America or to other countries. Because I always thought, this is crazy. I've been stopped yet again. And this never used to happen to me. And I, I started to track it myself. And I suddenly thought, yeah, literally the only difference. I'm a little older than I was before, which doesn't, you know, it's not easily recognizable. I'm wearing the same clothes, traveling to the same places, but now I've got long hair. And so for me, that was not exactly a wake-up call, but it was a really interesting illustration of how small a change can be, and it can have a material effect on how fast you can get through customs when you're traveling. Now, I know that's fairly trivial and tiny and unimportant, but I think just reflecting on that experience and how that might map across to more extreme experiences for people from other parts of the world was actually quite a useful learning experience for me. And I've always found talking to people breaks down barriers surprisingly successfully. You end up just having a chat and you realize that this person, whatever they look like or whatever their politics typically is another human being, broadly speaking, trying to achieve the same things you are, be relatively healthy, try to sort of achieve success in life and be comfortable and have a happy family life and that kind of stuff. And is your experience the same? Obviously, you have a very different perspective on the society 
around us now. Loughborough, by the way, I, I went to school in Loughborough, so I, I know it quite well. I'm very aware of that, that area. But your experience of Loughborough will be probably quite different to mine. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I don't actually live in Loughborough, but yes, I did do my PhD from Nottingham. So I know the Midlands area. Um, where the experience is really interesting because we live in a quite a affluent area, but I am probably the only brown person or the person of color in this small village that we live in. So my experience of microaggressions or racial incidents has been much more since we've lived here in this area than anywhere else in the country. And that could be just because of the area or because it's not as diverse, or it could be just that in the last five years or six years, a society or the conversation around race has changed and people have become more comfortable with articulating or vocalizing some of the implicit biases that they might have carried because it has become permissible to do so. And they've gained permission through uh, political messages or whatever that, yes, it's okay to do that. So social media has had a huge influence on that, I think. I mean, a lot of people consume their news through social media now uh, in a different way than when I was growing up, where the news was really the thing, you know, is the BBC or ITV or the newspapers. And now a declining number of people watch broadcast television, declining number of people read newspapers. Uh, they still have a valuable part to play, but they're not the main source of news for most people. And the social media, well, you must have something to say about social media, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, social media has played a huge role and it continues to play a huge role. And I think there's a sense of maybe a disillusionment being set in about social media among people now to see how some of these discourses are becoming, again, as I say, very black and white. You don't have nuanced discourses on social media. It becomes very, very polarized very, very quickly. And yes, it creates echo chambers and filter bubbles. We know how social media algorithms work as well. They have underlying biases built into them, which means that they can heighten and kind of perpetuate some of these societal biases that are already existing. They can create biases as well through the way that social media algorithms work. We know how Facebook has been used politically as well to create these divides or to give a certain kind of message to people during election time. We know how it's been mobilized. But also these kind of echo chambers and filter bubble means that we are more likely to engage only with people who think like us and have the same beliefs. Actually, research is showing that people are becoming more and more insular on social media in the way that they don't want to engage with people who have different views and they're blocking and muting, which is really good, healthy practices. But I also find that sometimes I get these messages from people who say, did you know that you're following this person who 
thinks like this or believes like this or follows this other person. And I always say, yes, I follow them because I like to know what's going on outside this, this bubble that I live in. If only I just engage with people who think like me, how can I engage with the diverse discourses? I mean, part of that as well. And so I think, yes, the social media is a democratizing platform, which gives voice to people who don't otherwise have voice. So in that way, it's really good because not just journalists can talk or write about things, not just people who have power or positions of power can express opinions. It is actually giving voice to activists, it's mobilizing communities who didn't actually have positions of power. But there is a downside to it in the way that it's becoming very polarized. I also think one of the things we miss in social media is we actually miss quite a lot of social cues that are external, that are, might be body language, it might be mannerisms uh, that we're sort of partly wired to recognize in other human beings. I often liken it to, there's a pub I used to go to when I was younger, and there was a chap who was sitting in the corner, I think he was almost certainly an alcoholic, he had a difficult life from what I could tell, and he was just a serial liar. He used to amuse people by telling them lies about himself. And, you know, he wasn't a threat to anybody. He was quite a sad character, but he was sort of amusing in a way. And he was the pub's sort of weird person. And everybody knew that. And so you'd buy him a half pint, he'd have a chat, he'd make some story up about being the SAS or being an astronaut or something equally absurd, which he wasn't. And you'd smile and be pleasant and move on. You would not think his opinion was important, though, subsequently, because you had all the other social cues and the knowledge around this person. And the trouble with social media is, A, there are a lot of fake accounts that literally aren't people. And B, people can sound very lucid. But in fact, if you were to meet them in person, your, your instincts would tell you that they had a lot of difficulties thinking or you know, they were troubled, very troubled. And I wonder how how we can get that recognition back in social media to help us make judgments. I think we need to rely less on social media for our social engagements and interactions, which was difficult, obviously, in the last year or so when we were all socially distancing and we didn't have much real life engagement. And so social media was a really a big anchor for people. But yes, we know how rumors or gossips or people have created fake accounts or fake narratives and fake stories and fake identities on social media. And it allows people to do that. And it allows our midst people to live life like this. And we are more likely to believe, I think, because, as you say, I think status also creates bias as well. If you see somebody with a lot of followers or somebody who's been retweeted a number of times or somebody who's been retweeted by somebody famous, we're more likely to believe them. So I think status bias plays a role very quickly in social media. And obviously, as I said before, we don't take time to rationalize the things on social media because we're often engaging with social media when we are busy multitasking, doing something else, standing in a queue in for a coffee or when we are supposed to be writing or working and we are <laughs> very quickly processing that information. So obviously it reverts a lot from our system on processing, which activates a lot of stereotypes, but also keeps these biases intact. So yes, I think more awareness and discussion about it and more ability for our younger people, I think, younger generation to critically analyze what they see and how to trust something or not. And we've seen the discussion around fake news, how fake news spreads so quickly around WhatsApp groups and with social media as well. I think, yeah, I think there's a problem because of the lack of trust in media as well, because people are relying more on social media because they don't 
have the same kind of trust in other reliable news sources now or in journalists or in politicians. So they prefer to get their news from kind of these crowdsourcing platforms. Yeah, it is interesting because, again, reading some papers on the algorithms, they're all designed to benefit the system, which with Facebook or YouTube might be people engaging with more comments. Facebook will have set up a thing which is, the more people are on our system, the more ads we can offer them, and therefore the more money we make. So what we want to do is anything that can keep them within our ecosystem, we literally don't care what it is. We are amoral. We, we have no biases whatsoever. So if we can take them down a rabbit hole, we're not deliberately taking them down a rabbit hole. What we're doing is we're taking them on a journey of engagement. And the quality of that information is irrelevant to the algorithm because what they want is human beings clicking that button like a Skinner box to get little rewards in their brain. And also you've got the people judging themselves by unobtainable standards. So in the the beauty industry for a long time, the fashion industry has been very guilty of this, which is they use professional models who are professionally photographed, and then they touch those professionally beautiful people up with Photoshop to make them even more professionally flawless. And then people are coming along trying to judge themselves, their flawed human being, by the standards of professional, beautiful people, and they're failing. And that's making them feel very bad and you know, is causing all forms of self-abuse as a result. And the unintended consequences of these sort of principles that people are using, I think, is something we really need to think about and consider. And social media needs to be more sociable in my opinion, these have some kind of awareness of its effects. So I think that might be starting to happen in the next few years, perhaps. But I don't know. Do you think they will ever take that into account? Yes, I think, like you say, the reward pathways in our brain are rewarded and we get addicted. It's a form of addiction that we all get addicted to it. This kind of instant gratification, instant uh, rewards that we get from people sharing our or uh, linking to our work. And as you said, the algorithms capitalize on it. There's been a lot of work done in it in the way that they create these scenarios or more clickbaity headlines so that people are clicking on it. I think that these social media platforms have to have more accountability. They need to have an ethical moral code about how they protect the minorities, how they protect women, how they protect against racism, how they protect against trolling, all those kinds of things. They need to have an inclusivity code, but also a moral and ethical code. And I think they've been allowed to run it in a way they want without any kind of accountability or challenge or anything like that. Recently, we saw a whistleblower from Facebook who showed us how they knew they were aware of the mental health impact the Instagram and Facebook was having on young people as young as 13, 14 year olds. But still, they continue to do that. They didn't do anything to counter that. And I think it's really a harmful, toxic and immoral to be continuing like that. They are not thinking about the impact that it has on people who are getting abusive messages. I know from on Twitter, I get abusive troll messages all the time, even threats, wow. in, um, threats against my children. Um, I've reported it to Twitter several times. And all I get is this automated message which says we didn't find it against Twitter policy. And so we cannot ban this or block this account or suspend this account or we can't do anything about it. And I think it's it's a sense of hopelessness when it comes to that, because you know that they are not responsible for anything that happens to you. But they create the scenario where you are compelled to 
engage with them. Yes, I can stop or deactivate my account tomorrow. Uh, and that's an easy solution. But when they are benefiting from people engaging with them, how are they not doing anything to counter or to, to be accountable for it? And I think that is going to happen soon. I think TikTok is perhaps taking more responsibility against content, what content is displayed, how people are on it, but still there are lots of flaws on it. I, I just feel like some of the decisions that are made are made from, again, a privileged position. And also I think is reflective of the lack of diversity in some of these teams as well. So we know that for instance, we know how much bias is built into artificial intelligence, not just social media, but also other tools and apps that are coming in. And that is because of the lack of diversity in these teams. So the bias can come from the data that's used because data is a reflection of our society and the bias is built in it. But it's also a reflection of the bias of the teams that are designing these tools and apps as well. So there's a whole lot of things that need to be addressed in this. It's just occurred to me that somebody's saying that if you don't want to be abused on Twitter, you should terminate your account. It's a bit like telling women, if you don't want to get it, you know, if you don't want to be uh, attacked at night, don't go out at night. It's not an answer. It's victim blaming. It's saying, well, just don't engage with our platform then, which is awful. Yeah, it is, again, exactly what you say. It is actually telling people that you have to be responsible for your own safety and not doing anything about the system or the structure that is enabling that kind of behavior. Mm. I mean, I think social media might actually, well, it's obviously going to be starting to be controlled by legislation. I mean, I think our politicians of all sorts of types are going to start to realize that something has to be done. And I think the European Union is probably going to be one of the first movers in this area, or China, actually. I can see China clamping down on this kind of stuff fairly quickly. There are certain places I... I can see lagging behind from actually doing anything on that basis. And I wonder, I wonder whether now Brexit's happened, whether you know, our politicians in Westminster should take a closer look at this, because they must be on the receiving end of all sorts of abuse, I would think. I mean, politicians sort of goes with the territory, but it shouldn't. Being disagreed with goes with the territory of being a politician, but being abused shouldn't go with the territory. And I wonder what the experience of members of parliament is in particular, whether they could be a power block to help move the conversation in a more positive direction and sort of legislate for this. Or do you think it can be done by moderate sized Britain or does it need to be global? I suppose it needs to be global, really. It has to be global. I think legislation would help, certainly. Again, it's a nuanced discussion about how we control these things, about how the company and the state can work together or organizations can have the autonomy, but still have some kind of legislation which manages these kind of the underlying bias or the prejudice it creates or how it reinforces it. I think as for the state or the politics in Britain, I don't know what to say, actually, because there are a whole lot of problems with our government. I think they don't acknowledge their privilege and position then it's very difficult for them to understand and acknowledge and experiences of other people who are not in as position or privilege. So again, thinking about misogyny, thinking about racism, we see these cases all the time coming from discrimination against trans people. And all these problems are not being addressed on the ground. How are they going to be addressed in social media or in the virtual world? First of all, they have to acknowledge that these problems exist, you know, and that should be the first step. But I haven't seen that either. 
what I constantly see is an attack on anybody who tries to raise these issues as woke or the fact that there is a woke culture or the fact that there's a culture war or the fact that there's a cancel culture rather than acknowledging that these problems exist in our society and we need to work hard, work together to address them. So I think, first of all, we need to deal with the real world as well, because real world social media is a reflection of the real world. Mm. Neuroplasticity, the fact that human beings are, well, some people would say they're not very good at learning, you know, we don't learn, but we are learning creatures. How do we help people overcome these biases? We talked about education, but once somebody's been brought up from an extreme perspective, like sort of de despecify it. But, you know, if, if you were brought up in a religious institution, let's say, and your whole brain is set up to process the world and process data through your learned experience of being a member of that particular society. How do we help people to relearn and use the brain's ability to heal, repair, create new pathways and unlearn what we've learned in a lifetime? Yeah, I mean, it cannot be a, a quick fix really, it cannot be a quick fix. It cannot be a 20 minute, half an hour, one hour uh, training session that you sit in front of a computer and you look at some information, click some buttons. Um, I recently was on a discussion with Bernice King, who's the daughter of Martin Luther King um, in the King Center in Atlanta, along with a gentleman called Christian, who used to be part of an extremist white group and how he came out of that early in his 20s and how he's using his experience to educate others who are also part of such extremist groups and to educate them, to help them understand how their actions impact others. So it, there has to be education. It has to come from representation, having more representation of people who have done similar things, who have overturned some of their biases and prejudices and how it's helped them. It has to come from messages, strong messages from organizations, from workplaces, from the government, from the media, that these are the ground rules that we work on, that this is uh, racism, this is sexism, this is harmful for our society, that we are all working towards an equal society. And it has to be a long process. As I say, it will take time to unlearn some of the things if they are really deeply embedded in us. I was also going to ask you about the historical perspective on this, because one of the things I'm fascinated is the medieval period. And, and I study aspects of the medieval period, and it's very clear that there appears to be a lot less racial bias in medieval England, for example. People don't travel as far. You know, going to Rome was a, was a big thing on pilgrimage. But there were people of colour, there were brown-skinned people in England, and some of them had extremely prestigious places. If we have a look at the various paintings of prestigious pageants and things. And, and quite often there's a very high status black people in amongst a large number of white people, which I think is kind of interesting. But the status of women in medieval England was broadly speaking, much less sought after. It was much lower status basically than men in every walk of society. That's obviously changed dramatically. Uh, it's going in the right direction. Do you see the general trajectory of of our society going from bad to better from your perspective of study? Do you think it's getting better? And can you imagine a time in, I don't know, another couple of generations where people are talking about this historically rather than as a contemporary subject? I'm an optimist. So I always like yeah. to think that things are going to get better because if we don't have hope, then what do we have? That's why we're talking about. That's why we're writing about it. That's why we're discussing this. 
But I also think about when I was born, my mother tells me that her first thought was not sadness because she had a daughter that would face similar oppression or other forms of inequalities or other things in the society that she had faced. And she became sad about it. But then she became optimistic that things will change very quickly and that things will not be the same. When I was growing up, we were talking about street harassment, rape. We could go out on public transport the way that you're supposed to be in society or in public so that you don't get abused. It was always your fault. Now we're having coming back. It's like a full cycle. We're coming back to the discussion again about you have to look after yourself, how afraid you are when you're going out in the dark, how always you're looking over your shoulder. And I sometimes worry, how do I bring up children in such a society to give them a message that you're empowered and you can do everything but still give them a message that actually, no, you have to be afraid of certain things as well, because this is a racist, sexist society. So there is those kind of anxieties and worries about whether we are really changing, whether the system is really changing, or whether we think that certain things, small things have changed, and we think that these are big changes because we want to be optimistic. As I said earlier, there's also a backlash. So there is the discussion about feminism is really good. And we're talking about raising feminist girls, about our girls being empowered, women being empowered. But again, that message is not getting across to how we raise boys. And unless we do that, we cannot resolve some of the sexism and misogyny in our society because we have to think about how we raise boys and how we raise men is a really crucial element of that because we cannot just change women's behavior to address sexism and misogyny. We have to change overall behavior of everybody. We have to raise men to understand that they're part of the system. It's not just a woman's problem. So I think there have been changes in the way we're talking about things more openly, but I am cautious and still not as sure about how much things have really changed. Yes, from medieval times, yes, women have more. When we start looking back, we yes, women have more power and privilege. And we are fairly independent and we we live in freedom and we can do what we want. But as I talked about in my most recent book, Motherhood on the Choices of Being a Woman, I think sometimes we think we have all the choices, but aren't our choices limited by what we think are the right choices we have to make in society as well. So I think there is a lot of work still to be done. Well, look, this has been a fascinating talk. Thank you so much for your time. Was there any last thought you wanted to leave our listeners with before we wrap up? We could go on about this for ages. I quite like to actually and get into some of the nitty gritty areas of it. But you've you've done a wonderful job. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for talking about this. And uh, these are kind of topics that there's no quick solution. As I say, I can't just say do this and things will be resolved. But I think we all have to believe that Little things we do can create change. I think that even little steps we take will have some kind of echo somewhere and that can create change for somebody, somebody who reads your words, somebody who hears your voice, somebody who reads something from you or comes in contact with you will be affected by your words. So even when we might think it's quite bleak and we might think that things are not changing fast enough, I think if we all keep doing little things, it's like chipping away at a system, things that have been embedded in our system for so long that it will take time to dismantle it. But we all have to work together. And again, yeah, little things can create big changes. I would agree with you there because I think it's much easier for all of us to do small changes that we can manage than expect one person to sort of come in and change the world overnight because realistically, that's not going to happen. What actually does happen is society changes because all the members of society within it 
realize that they want something else to happen. And actually, you only get a sense of how far you've traveled often if you stop, turn around and look back and realize we have come a long way. We, we have a long journey ahead of us, but you know, we are quite some way on this journey and we shouldn't be too depressed about it. We don't want to rest on our laurels or give up. You know, we have to keep fighting for these kind of things. But at the same time, we shouldn't be too depressed because it's not perfect yet. Yeah, exactly. And it's also thinking about what kind of world we are going to leave behind and mm. to change that world for a better world. Wonderful. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.